close to the end this this day and two more Sundays, uh, Lord willing, and we will have uh, finished this wonderful, amazing book of Hebrews. We're on page 1009. If you want to use the Bible that's in front of you, either in the chair or in the pew, it's Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll begin reading with verse 18. After the exhortation to continue in the way of Christ, the first part of chapter 12, he says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet more, uh, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord, bless us in hearing your word. Lord, may we see the beauties and riches of Christ. May all the more, Lord, we cling to him and turn away from any temptation that would draw us from Christ. Oh, Lord, bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. No, malls are not the end thing anymore, but when I do go in a mall, the first thing I do is go to the chart to find out where I am. I'm looking for a store. I get my bearings. Well, this passage tells you not only where you are, but where you are not. So if there was a spiritual map up here, it would say, you are not here. You are here. Okay. But in addition, as you'll, as we'll see, it says, and don't ever be over here again. Okay. You are here. In the heavenly Jerusalem, you're not here at Mount Sinai, and don't ever go there. It's a place of judgment and death apart from Christ. So, 
You can see the outline in your bulletin. You're not in the old world, which is epitomized by Sinai, the Mount Sinai. You're in the new world, which is characterized by Mount Zion. And so live as people in this new world. What's interesting about this passage is after admonishing us to continue in Christ, to continue the race, not to be weak and to make a a straight path with our feet and, and not to be like Esau, he says, here's why. Here's why you must continue. Because you've not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. So feel the weight of this argument. Continue in Christ. Because you're not at Mount Sinai. You're in Mount Zion. And then he follows it by saying, he speaks to you from that place of the blood of Christ. So you must not turn away because of the riches that you have been brought into, because of the immense privilege that is yours, that you have come to Mount Zion. So in the description of the beauty of where you are, as opposed to where you were, it's all bound up in this exhortation to continue in Christ. Because your privileges are Beyond imagination. Because you have not come to the terrifying atmosphere of Mount Sinai. But to the festive joy of Mount Zion. Will you walk out of this triumphant everlasting celebration. Into darkness and judgment. Will you do that? No matter what you might lose on this earth. He is speaking to these Hebrews who are in danger of apostatizing, in danger of turning away because of their fear of persecution or because of their desire of more of this world. And he's trying to say, you have Zion. You must continue and not give it up. There are seven terms in each of these descriptions. It begins, the first one, with what may be touched This word is used of the darkness of the plague in Egypt. It says it was a darkness that could be touched. It means it was a palpable darkness. You could feel the weight of it. And so he uses that to indicate the weightiness of this, these continuing words, a blazing fire, a darkness, a gloom, a tempest. It gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Gloom, a storm. The terms are addressing, they address your senses, your sense of touch, your sense of sight, your sense of hearing then. A sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. See, Sinai is being described here, interestingly, In even more severe terms than it was in the Old Testament. For instance, there's no mention of God's presence in this description. But God's presence was obvious at Sinai. And it's an impersonal voice. It's not even called the voice of God. It's just this impersonal voice that brings terror 
to people only. And then Moses, of whom it does not say at the account of Sinai that he trembled. In fact, he went into the presence of God. And this is either borrowed from uh, his description of the calf when at that point he trembled at the anger of God or at the burning bush where he trembled or in Jewish tradition that has Moses tremble. But the point is he's saying outside of Christ, even the mediator of the Old Testament trembles in the presence of this holy God. And and remember, he's especially uh, addressing Jewish believers. He's saying to them, do you want to return to that place that now is only a place of judgment? Where even the mediator of that covenant trembles in fear? That's the feeling of this. As As he said earlier... In Hebrews 10, the law is but a shadow. We talked about that. It's just a shadow. It has nothing in itself. It's only a shadow of the real substance that's to come in Christ. It can't make perfect those who draw near. It cannot bring forgiveness. And so now the Old Testament is being, or, or, or the Sinai is being looked at through the eyes of the New Testament, the eyes of Christ. And what would happen if you abandon Christ to return simply to Sinai? It will be all over for you if you do that. And if Jews, even going back to their Judaism, would be in judgment at the foot of Sinai, it says anybody who abandons Christ for anything will fall under terrible judgment. So it's the contrast of Sinai and Mount Zion, but it's recast as the old now in the light of the new. In its inerrant inadequacy in and of itself, in the critical fulfillment that had to take place in Christ. To return to Sinai would be to walk into judgment And so, as one commentator says, he's trying to overwhelm the hearers with the terror of this place of judgment. If possible, he would have them smell the horror of separation from God. But this is not where you have come. See, that's what he starts with. This is not where you have come. This is not where you are on this map. You're here. In Zion, not here, trembling at the foot of Mount Sinai. This description in 19 through 21 is graphic and dreadful. There's a separation from God. It's impersonal. But notice in 22 through 24, in the second part, where you are in this new world, it's filled with persons in fellowship with God. There, in the Old Testament, in Sinai, angels and God are on one side, separated. There, he he is on the mountain. We are down here below. But now, in Zion, people and angels are shoulder to shoulder in the presence of God. In the description of Sinai, the inapproachability of God is apparent. 
huddled here at the base of the mountain, but now full access to his presence of those whose names are now permanently inscribed in the heavenly archives. Could the description be any greater, the the contrast? And even in the language, you have not come to this, but there's a huge word used here, the Greek word Allah that says, in contrast, decisively different from this fear and dread and darkness and gloom and storm, you've come into festivity. (laughs) Party's not a big enough word to describe it. But party may be even happier than you think of. <laughs> but it's not big enough. It's not deep enough. You need feast or holiday celebration or gala or jamboree or fiesta or something to get at what he's saying. Again, we have seven terms. The first term is made up of three where he says Mount Zion, the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. That's one term there describing the same thing. This is the city. The city represents the whole kingdom that we have. It represents the sanctuary that we are in with God. It represents safety and protection, fullness of resources, joyous and intimate fellowship and interaction and collaboration forever. That's where you are. That's where you're headed and already you're there. You have come. No doubt that you're going to inherit that. Here, let me set your eyes on it and, and not just say that you'll be there. You have come there. That's where you must live your life. This myriad of angels underscores the sheer density of the angel population. Right? And it would be better to translate innumerable angels a festal gathering. See, it it underscores this is a festal gathering. And remember, angels, as in two of them destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Two. As in John, not once but twice in the book of Revelation, fell before the angel. And the angel said, don't, no, don't do that. I'm just a servant. And then a little while later, he hits the deck again, even after the angel had said it once. Just the sheer glory and majesty of this creature just brought him to his face again. And he had to pick him up again. No, no, no. Again, I'm just a servant. We're going to be in the midst of them. In the midst of these glorious creatures. So it could, be, it could be said, angels as far as you could see, and they were there to celebrate. The sheer overwhelming joy and exhilaration, the euphoria, the rush, it's electrifying. I think of myself as standing there thinking, I wish I'd never used the word awesome before. <laughs> We're called the firstborn. He is the firstborn. Now in him, we are the firstborn. We're the enrolled ones. Our names are there. This is, this is our citizenship. We belong there. This is our inheritance. Contrasting Esau, who gave away his firstborn privileges. 
He threw away his inheritance. But we who are trusting in Christ are the firstborn, named with our Savior, having the same inheritance as he does. And then the middle term is more graphic than the English translations. It actually reads this way, and to a judge, God overall. And to a judge, God overall, emphasizing his, he is the judge and he's the ruler, creator of all things. That's why he is judge. It's the centerpiece of this description because he's the center of heaven. And it's rather jarring in this context to hear judge. But actually, there's even more assurance in that word because we're in a festal Gathering before our judge. How about that? Not what you usually associate with appearing before God as judge. But this has the description. He is judge and we're in festal gathering to indicate, as he goes on to state, how effective our mediator Christ is. How wonderfully the blood speaks of forgiveness of us. Because we're in fellowship with this God. It also, of course, underscores that we only are accepted because of what Christ has done. How else could it be that we would be in the presence of the judge? And there's still this echo that for anyone to reject this God, to reject this Christ, you will face this judge. He is the judge in festal gathering, but take Christ away and he is the consuming fire who will consume you apart from Jesus. Jesus is our only hope and our only standing. When he says the spirits of the righteous made perfect, he now is especially not just looking at all the saints, uh, both here and in heaven, as he did earlier. But now this is particularly underscoring those who have gone to be with him. And made perfect in Hebrews. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. That's the problem with one of these. You can't cough. It just hurts your ears really badly. I turned away right into the mic, so that was real helpful. <coughs> if I wasn't so stupid, maybe I wouldn't have done that. But <coughs> uh, So here... Uh, Made perfect means made perfect by Christ. It recalls the language that in his death, he made us perfect, made us perfectly acceptable before God. And now it takes us into heaven itself, this this, uh, recreation of us in the presence of God. It shows the true and final extent of his work. And so then the whole passage ends on this apex. Even though God is the centerpiece, then the apex and finality of the final description is Jesus. He's the reason there is a festal gathering. His sacrifice, his suffering, his bearing the wrath of God on our behalf is the whole reason that both angels and men made righteous are celebrating in his presence. He is the mediator of this new covenant. The mediator of the Old old Covenant now is pictured as trembling under God's judgment. 
the mediator of the new covenant, has us in festal gathering in the presence of God. Abel's cries were for vengeance. His blood cried for vengeance. Christ's blood cries for mercy. Abel's blood was ineffective to do anything. But Christ's blood has brought us into heaven itself. Christ's blood proclaims mercy. And these people in the presence of God are all a result of the crying out of Christ's blood. Now, I want to underscore this for you who, who, who profess the name of Christ. You are here in Mount Zion and not here at Mount Sinai. How do you live your life? Do you live your life fundamentally, even in the midst of loss and difficulty and struggle? Do you live your life in the presence of the festal gathering? Is this some of the flavor of your life? Some of the color that people get from you? That you've, you're marked by the festivity of heaven, that you've already come there, you're entered. These things are already yours. You are already living in anticipation of these things. You're already living in the comfort and expectation of these things because you know they're yours now. How will you live, right? And we have to be ruthless with our unbelief. That lands us in the place of thinking that God, even though we think or say we've believed in the death of Christ, that God basically has a frown toward us every day. That God's basically up there just shaking his head at us. That God lives in perpetual frustration over us. That he's basically an ogre in heaven. And he's not the God of this festival. Where do you live? Where's your faith? Don't live in unbelief. Don't allow Satan to make you think you're at the, at the bottom of that mountain instead of in heaven. He's the accuser of the family. He's the accuser of the family. Don't allow his accusation To be louder than the cry of Christ's blood that says mercy is over this person and he is in the festal gathering. Christ's blood does not leave you trembling at the bottom of Mount Sinai. It brings you into this festival of the presence of God. That's where you are. You are the firstborn. And then he warns them. On the basis of this Christ, he, he really is, is saying here, he speaks to us not now in the context of Mount Sinai. He speaks to us in the gripping presence of Christ's blood. He speaks from heaven. He speaks on the basis of Christ's blood to us. This whole scene of of first Sinai, but especially Mount Zion, provides the basis for the final warning. 
He's speaking by the blood of Christ. It's almost as though he's put on the face of the shed blood of Christ and he addresses you. Will you not believe? Will you not continue to believe? Will you turn away from this Christ who has suffered so much to bring you into this place? What will tempt you to leave him? What persecution will tempt you to leave him? What riches of this world will tempt you to leave and walk out of the festal gathering? He speaks to this, uh, from this place to which you've been admitted. He speaks from this place that shows God's passion and extravagant expenditure to do you good. He speaks from the one who is the sure demonstration of the love of God. <clears throat> he speaks from the one who is the assurance of his unlimited desire for us. He speaks to us. He puts on the face of the death of Christ and shows us that God is love. And then he challenges, will you abandon this God? Will you turn away from this God who's done this for you? So in the context of this acceptance and intimacy, in the context of Christ offering himself, It makes me think of that passage in John 15 where he says, quoting the Old Testament, they hated me without cause. They hated me without cause. They rejected me without cause. For he is the Lord who has sacrificed himself to open up heaven for you and me. To have a hope, to have a comfort, to have a purpose in this life. To have a wonderful, glorious destiny that helps you in this horrible, dark place that it is so often. And he shows that the suspicions we have of him are not only unfounded, they're insane. They're insane. Our suspicions that you won't do me good. Our suspicions that you won't take care of me. Our suspicions that you won't be with me. But to turn away from him is catastrophic. And he says, don't turn away from the word that is speaking right now to you. See, you saying it to them. And, and I would say to you, brothers and sisters, friends. Right now, he's speaking this word to you. Right now, don't disregard it. Don't have contempt of Christ. Don't, as he put it earlier, trample the blood of Christ. John Owen said that this aggravation of the contempt of Christ is... The highest way we could despise God. The highest way you can despise God is in the face of his offering of Jesus to you. To say, I won't have you. I won't have you. So, don't go to another place for safety. 
and satisfaction and honor and glory. In heaven, we will have all that makes life complete and engaging and fascinating and fresh with constant energy and happiness and creative work and worship and relationship. He alone can give it. What matter if you lose the whole world? What matter if you lose the whole world? And so we are left, I'll just end with this, to offer him acceptable worship, being in awe of his love and grace, worshiping him with reverence, because we know our God is a consuming fire. That fire has consumed our own Savior on our behalf, and this holy God now dwells with us in a fiesta. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us in Christ. We pray, oh, Lord, that you would make us more and more to be people who love and adore you, who admire you, who are amazed at where we are. And, Lord, who live out our new world in this dark world. And we live as those people that are in that new world and that Lord, the festivity, the joy, the exhilaration of knowing God will permeate our lives. It will affect how we love others, how we do our work, how we go on vacation, how we do everything, every minute of the day. So that as Paul says, do everything in the name of Christ Jesus. Bless us to that end, we pray. Amen.